You're listening to Tech Square ATL. We tell the stories of Tech Square, the heart of Atlanta's tech scene. Breakthrough talent, breakthrough ideas, and breakthrough companies. Welcome to the Hump Day Exchange. I am your host, Scott Henderson, a.k.a. Scotty Hendo on the interwebs. We're recording in front of a live audience in Tech Square, the heart of Atlanta's tech scene, and I'm excited to bring you this episode. Either a great sound effect or real proof that there are people here. The Hump Exchange is a collaborative effort of Sandbox ATL, ATDC, and Georgia Tech Scheller College of Business. This is episode 12, so this is our one-year anniversary of doing this show, which is fun. So, um, this ain't your father's quadcopter. Uh, this episode is entitled By Land, Sea, and Air, and we'll explore um, the world of drones of all sizes and modalities. We have, we have another insightful uh, group of guests. We got Trolls Adrian from the Metro Atlanta Chamber. Professional drone racer and collegiate champion, Nick Wild Willie Willard. I love that. That's an awesome name, by the way. Uh, and Justin Lee, a drone entrepreneur. So if you're listening to our show for the first time, here's how the program will go. After a short introduction to the topic, I'll invite each guest into the hot seat for a one-on-one -on -one conversation focused on their perspective. Once all three are through, we'll gather them all for a roundtable conversation where they get to ask each other questions. Then uh, we'll finish with a town hall Q&A with our live audience guests. So... Let's begin with setting the frame. Um, with the advancements in, in hardware and software, unmanned vehicles have shifted from the military to consumer markets in a relatively short order. While most people thinking of the predators buzzing high above the battlefield when they hear the word drone, there's a growing diversity of drones. I mean, like, it's almost like the animals that inspire their creations. Uh, drones can not only fly, but they can swim and crawl the earth. Um, and even more interesting, we can find enormous drones taking to the sea while micro drones take flight. So Southern Company, I was talking with uh, Michael Britt from the Southern Company Innova uh, Energy Innovation, Innovation Center yesterday and he was sharing with me that they, they use drones to inspect their nuclear power plants and have begun to use them to inspect power transmission lines instead of helicopters. They recently had two uh, helicopter accidents and so they're starting to, to look at drones as a solution for that. They're also using micro drones to inspect towers to ensure the safety of those towers before having a person climb on them. Um, if you look into the interwebs, you'll find that the U.S. Navy is driving innovation in the, in the, in the seaborne drone space thanks to their advanced underseen, undersea prototyping program. Last uh, August, the U.S. Navy tested three types of seaborne machines uh, the at the same time. The surface robot was an ocean aero submarine. The underwater robot was uh, the, the Marlin drone sub-vehicle made by Lockheed Martin. And the flying drone was a foldable Vector Hawk drone also made by Lockheed Martin. This year, Huntington Ingalls and Boeing unveiled a 50-ton modular seaborne drone that um, in its design kind of mimics the train and its cars, which you can, you can change out what's in between the, the beginning and the end. Um, and so it can do anything from surveil to deliver a weapon payload. So it's a pretty enormous drone. Um, and then humanitarian organizations, I was speaking with a, a gentleman from CARE International, and they're saying that they're beginning to uh, look at seaborne drones uh, for disaster relief efforts, because with the climate change uh, uh, impacting coastal areas the most, the, these agencies are expecting that they're going to have to be ready to deliver supplies and uh, other things via seaborne methods rather than airborne methods. Um, then there's the whole swarming airborne drones, spider-like crawling drones, and all kinds of science fiction fantasies turning into reality. So they're getting smaller, faster, and better. Uh, and that's what we're really going to explore today is you know, how, how is the acceleration of this technology, how is the miniaturization, but also the humongification, if you want to coin a new word, how is that going to open up new opportunities and new solutions uh, for individuals, for companies, for society? So um, it's a chance for us to, to really get deep, dig, deep in, so dig deeper, so let's get started. Um, let's start with our first guest in the hot seat, Trolls Adrian. Let's welcome him to the hot seat as, with a round of applause, perhaps. That's a novel solution, right? So as he's putting his headset in, let me uh, share with you uh, hello to our new audience members. Uh, feel free to roll closer if you'd like. Um, Trolls uh, serves as director of supply chain ecosystem expansion for the Metro Atlanta Chamber of Commerce. Uh, he leads uh, their efforts in terms of uh, really promoting uh, the opportunities here in the Metro Atlanta area around supply chain. Um, you've had a wide-ranging career, um, starting in uh, Denmark, uh, being born there, right? You're, and growing up there, going to school there, uh, and it's not Copenhagen, it's Copenhagen. Is that right, close? Copenhagen, if you're speaking Danish. Copenhagen, Copenhagen. It's not the prettiest language. It's, it's, 
It is an odd sounding if you're not used to it, but it's great to watch it and try to pretend to understand it. Um, so you, uh, you went through your career, you, got your, you moved here, got your second master's degree here at Georgia Tech in city and regional planning. And while here, you were the award-winning student that you were, 2010 Ed McClure Award, given by the Association of Collegiate Planning, Schools of Planning for the best master's level study planning research paper in the United States and Canada. So the Canucks and the US had to say that you were the best. So that's awesome. So you live right here in Midtown. And uh, my friend Nathaniel said, you got to have trolls on this show. He's going to be awesome. And so you better deliver. Otherwise, uh, I'm, you know, I'm going to question uh, our previous, uh, previous friend as if that friendship still, still lasts. <laughs> High expectations. It, it's all inside jokes here. And uh, I'm the only one that has the inside scoop. So uh, let's get started with the question. So what's, what's your elevator pitch for um, uh, Atlanta as a logistics and supply chain technology cluster? Well, uh, you know, our founding story, you can start with that, really. And Atlanta was, was founded not as a trading hub or, or as an agricultural hub or any other uh, industrial hub. We were founded on logistics, right? I mean, they, the original name for, for Atlanta was Terminus, was incorporated in 1847 as Atlanta. Uh, but uh, the reason why this city exists is because it's the um, northernmost uh, point where you can easily cross the Appalachian mountain chain. Uh, to deliver goods from uh, and to the eastern seaboard into what at that time was the uh, quickly industrializing Midwest. And so logistics is in our blood uh, here and, and it has been ever since. We obviously have a very large corporate community around supply chain. And so uh, because of, of the development of, of logistics technology over the, the 20th century and now into the 21st century, there's obviously always been a demand for, uh, for new solutions and, and, and new technology here. Um, and with, uh, with UPS moving here in the 80s and, and uh, then Manhattan Associates later on, uh, we have two of the most innovative uh, companies in the entire industry uh, here as, as some of our anchors. And today, uh, Atlanta is actually tied with New York for the uh, largest number of, supply, of top supply chain software companies anywhere in North America. So we actually beat the Bay Area on that account, which is pretty unique for, for a city. We're not, we're not that big compared to, say, in New York, but we have mm. a very, very large concentration of supply chain software companies. So this is really one of the most important places in the, uh, in the entire world when it comes to logistics technology. Well, you mentioned um, the railroad, and then we have uh, a very deep seawater port over in Savannah, um, and we also have the airport, world's busiest airport as well, right? So we've got three different modalities right we, there. We have every, every mode known to man is, uh, is, is uh, in, in our region, or very close to it, yeah. And a little bit of an interstates. We just have a couple of interstates here. <laughs> yes, we're actually the largest largest region in the country that has three uh, three major interstates. Uh, wow. So uh, this this is yeah we're, we're a transportation town for sure. Hmm. So um, I mean I, I want to kind of use our time to kind of provide that wider frame of uh, the world of, of drones, but also how it fits into the, the, the circulatory system of what transportation. I mean logistics is all about right. So feeding our our communities. Um, so basically, as, as going through this, if someone's just learning about drones, um, how, how do you describe the difference between robots and drones? Well, I think originally people would, uh, would have defined the two as, as drones as just being kind of flying robots. But as drones are moving into other modes, again, we're talking about land, air, and sea here, right? I think the distinction is becoming less and less meaningful uh, in the sense that uh, drones are, a, are machines that, that uh, uh, to do something, right? They, uh, they perform a task. Um, and uh, I, I, think, I think the definition is, is not necessarily as important uh, as it used to be. So it started blurring, blurring the lines now. Very much because, so. Because it, it, it almost seemed, used to it kind of, uh, indicate some sort of autonomous operation, um, one versus the other, or one being controlled at, uh, with wires or, or airline. Exactly, but you know now you're having drones that are operating either fully or semi semi autonomously, and so mm -hmm. so there is um, uh, there is there there is again the, the distinction is becoming less meaningful, and of course that has to do with the fact that technology is becoming um, ubiquitous uh, as 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 it evolves. So, um, how have drones already impacted uh, logistics and supply chains? We're still very much early uh, in the de in the development and the, in the impact there. You know there are many fields where drones are actually today having impacts at scale. You, you mentioned a few of them in your introduction, uh, things like surveying or uh, inspections, or of course in photography, cinematography, 
um, sports, uh, all these uh, consumer, uh, the consumer market. We're still very much early in the game in supply chain. Uh, the, the reason for that is uh, that most supply chains require scale, right? And so drones today are not able to deliver the scale that, uh, that you need um, at, the, at the price point you need uh, in, in, uh, for that they're not able to outcompete the current the, the modes that are currently uh, deployed. I think that'll happen fairly soon, though. Uh, you're going to start seeing it. So today, the impacts are mostly in serving hard-to-reach areas. So, mm -hmm. for example, in uh, in things like disaster recovery, certainly a disaster relief, but also in uh, doing things like you, if you if you need to do uh, pharmaceutical testing, for example, epidemiology, you need to get samples out of a very hard-to-reach region. Um, drones can do that better than it other modes of transportation. Uh, you can also think about rural delivery, for example, Amazon is doing testing, but most of those solutions are still in the testing phase. They're not in full deployment. I think where we're closest to deployment is in places like Switzerland, for example, where the Swiss Post is mm. fairly far along in doing mail delivery uh, to uh, rural towns in Switzerland using drones only. So we're, we're starting to get there. Just think that they're the ones that invented yodeling so they could communicate across the mountains, right? And now they're going to be the ones yodel droning. Yeah, that's very true. That's I, I hadn't thought about it that way. No, neither did I, but I, I was testing <laughs> out my joke on you. So Maybe the drones will yodel. That would be pretty uh, That would be awesome. Yeah. Uh, has anyone got yodeldrone.com? If you don't, you should grab it. Yeah. All right. Then go with Eddie right now. <laughs> so uh, I'm curious. Uh, so help us see the future here. What's, what, what emerging... Uh, applications do you see within drones and logistics and supply chains that get you most excited? Well, I think what I think is so exciting about drones, you know, there's so much talk about robots um, displacing jobs, displacing workers. A lot of what we're seeing today in drones, and I think what we will see for this foreseeable future, is actually drones being an enhancement of our current capabilities. They're not necessarily going to displace workers or or or, or uh, displace other modes of delivery, but what they're going to do is they're going to enable us to do things we haven't been able to do before. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, when it comes to developing economies, one of the hardest problems to solve there is the last mile and the first mile, i.e., getting product in and out of remote villages. Mm. That is a critical link to the global economy for a lot of those places, that you're going to be able to greatly lower the cost of serving communities like that by using drones. Mm. So that's what, what gets me excited about drone technology uh, in, in, uh, in general in the, in the supply chain. I mean, are we going to see warehouses where there are kind of no lights, nothing, just machines and packages moving around and doing their things? or? Well, you know, there's, uh, we're already starting to get there, in, in, especially in Europe. They, a, lot of, a lot of warehouse automation, of course, is, a, uh, is, is basically about what the equilibrium is between the cost of labor and the cost of, of, uh, of automation, right? So, so we're, certainly, we're certainly getting closer there. And you can also, because you're in a controlled environment, you can have drones do things there um, that you wouldn't be able to do outside because of, of uh, regulatory uh, concerns. And so there's already testing being done. I think it's, uh, it's, I think it's DHL that has done a, a test where they're actually doing inventory uh, controls using drones that are constantly flying around scanning uh, packages so they know exactly where they are and then they can, uh, they can do things like auditing using drones. That, of course, is a, is a technology that, that will lower uh, labor. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, that there is certainly that. Hmm. Interesting. Well, we, we've got plenty of ground to cover, um, and I'm excited to have you back on the, the roundtable and for the Q&A, but um, in, in between then, um, w where can uh, folks find you on the interwebs? What's the best way to find you? Well, at TrollsAdrian is on Twitter, uh, and if you're interested in learning more about the Metro Atlanta Chamber, we're pretty easy to find there as well, metroatlantachamber.com. So. Yeah, that'd be awesome, and chooseatl.com if you're uh, an individual thinking about, should I move here? It's a Very great place true. to live. Absolutely. So, so thank you, Trolls, for uh, coming in. All right, my next guest, as he uh, as Trolls goes out, and Nick Willard comes into the hot seat. So welcome, Nick Wild Willie Willard. What's up? Hey, hey. So uh, you are a Georgia Tech aerospace engineering student. Uh, you helped bring home the first ever Division I national championship in drone racing uh, here in April. You and your teammate, you were third and he was first and team won the entire thing. Is that my research correct on that one? No, my, uh, I was third in individual racing and my other teammate, I had two others. One of them got, 
I believe, sixth, and the other one somewhere between 15. So uh, you were the best Georgia Tech. Correct. Fly, and together, you all won the, the team yeah, title. Yeah, we dominated. Dominated. That. Wow, that's amazing. So, um, But you're also a professional drone racer, right, on the Drone Racing League circuit? Correct. And that's going to start its second season on ESPN2? Yep, it started... Not uh, ESPN Ocho, but ESPN2. <laughs> yeah, it started, uh, it started last Tuesday. Oh, it did? All Every right, so Tuesday, Wednesday, 8 p.m. on ESPN2. Nice. There's been, I think, one or two reruns on ESPN1 so far. And you, you live in the same building that we are housed in. We're recording the Square on Fifth Tower, so it's awesome to have you a part of the Tech Square community. So I, I think you know, some people who are listening to this who aren't familiar uh, with what you are doing, uh, especially on the drone racing. How would you describe the drone racing league? Uh, what is that? It is pro- it's probably the, the very first professional drone racing league. And they basically do, you know, they're in their second season now. They go to crazy places, you know, abandoned buildings, to the Miami Dolphins Stadium. And we just, you know, set up professional races. It's kind of like a NASCAR stock racing style. So everyone gets identical drones, identical gear. They set up, you know, the craziest three-dimensional tracks that, you know, we race through at 80 miles an hour. <laughs> How did you get into that? I mean, what were you doing? I know you're aerospace engineering, so you've probably been playing around with this kind of stuff for a while. But where, when, when, what was your, your origin story? How did you get into this? Yeah, so it started off in, uh, in high school. I did a, an unpaid internship in a, a UAV lab at the University of Kentucky, and it was all fixed-wing playing UAVs and I was like oh this is really cool you know I think I finally found something that I love and from there I got into uh, like RC planes just you know standard RC planes go out to the flying field and flying and then I saw a video on YouTube of these French guys who were they had these like little drones that were like you know a foot across that they had lights on they were racing them through the woods and I was like that is the coolest thing I've ever seen and I need to do that right now (laughs) and so I went out and I you know got a little mini racing drone and I learned how to fly FPV and so FPV is first-person view, right? Yes, So, so it's like view. you're putting goggles on to see what it's like inside the drone, almost like a pilot is through the plane. Exactly. Right? So there's a little camera on the front of the drone that wirelessly sends the video feed back to a pair of goggles that you're wearing on your head, and it's you know completely immersive. It's basically mm-hmm. as if you are the drone. So knowing that you started in fixed-wing RC kind of remote control planes, that's traditionally you're watching it from afar, what was the difference in flying a, uh, uh, an RC versus an FPV? It's entirely different. I mean, I, I would say it's, I, you almost can't even compare them. Hmm. That, that, that stark of a difference. Yeah, it is oh. complete. I mean, it'd be like, you know, telling someone who's a truck driver to go, hey, uh, we're going to put you in a NASCAR and you're going to go to the World Cup. And you're like, what? <laughs> <laughs> wow. So uh, when, what was that moment when you realized that you could really hang as a professional <clears throat> drone racer? Yeah, so... I mean, there was a really, really definitive moment in my mind. And I was flying for about, you know, a year, year and a half or so. And last April, uh, I went to my, my very first big race. So, you know, one of the, the big races that all of the really good racers, you know, fly from around the country, around the world to come to. And it was in Louisville. And I had a buddy who was here in Atlanta who was like, yeah, I'm going up there. You know, we're going to do the live stream for this stuff, you know. If you want to, I can get you a spot in because we're a sponsor, so we can you know, kind of create a spot out of thin air for you to fly. You can ride up with us, and it'll be a fun weekend. And I was like, oh, that'd be, that'd be great, man. I've never been to a real race before, but you know, I'll, I'll go see what I can do. And I remember the first day we get there, and we set up, and I'm just like looking at the pilot roster. I'm like, oh, my God, this is, this is going to be really bad. This is about <laughs> to be the most embarrassing weekend of my life. And after the... After the very first heat of qualifications, I was like, oh, my God, that was so bad. I can't, can't believe I'm here. I'm going to pack up and go home. And I walk over to the scoreboard, and it's like, oh, I have the fastest lap of anyone so far. <laughs> and I was like, oh, what? I was like, you've got to be kidding me. This, that doesn't even make sense to me. And at that point, I was like, oh, uh, you know, I might have something here. Wow. King Arthur has found his sword. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So, um, so you just got back from competition in Europe is that right My yeah I was there about 23 days I was in Europe so, so Jared uh, Servas who does our producing for the show is like sending me show notes and I'm like wow you just yeah. got back so what, <laughs> well, what, were, what were you doing there like what was happening did they have a, a whole series of stuff or yeah so uh, Europe this season uh, the way that uh, the DRL drone racing league is broken down is there's uh, there's four regular season events that were in the US they happened from uh, they started in late January went through uh, early April 
And after those, uh, the, the league has 16 pilots with the whole season. Uh, 12 pilots uh, move on into the, what's called the, the Munich playoffs. Hmm. So 12 of those 16, we got flown to Munich. We competed there in the playoffs. Uh, it was a two-day event. After that, four more pilots get dropped. And the top eight from there uh, then move on to London for the DRL season finale world championship. Wow. And so I was in, uh, in London and Munich for DRL. And after the championship ended, uh, me and another DRL pilot went to uh, France for a week just to you know, blow off steam. Glad the season's finally over. Eat cheese and drink wine and reminisce. <clears throat> oh, yes. Reminisce on the good old days. So, so um, how, how global is the sport? I mean, what are we, what are we talking about? Where are people coming from? Where's, oh, your, where's your toughest competition come from? The toughest competition, uh, it's, it's hard. Uh, I'd say some of the best pilots in the world are either in the U.K. or in the U.S. The U.S. probably has, you know, a higher concentration of pilots, mainly because, you know, we just have a lot more people than Britain. You know, the people... A lot more here. land, too. Yeah, a lot more flying. land. Yeah, because when I was in Britain... I was blown away by how pilots can fly there. It's like it rains every day and it's cold every, like it was the middle of summer and I was like, I have to wear a jacket and pants. And I'm like, how do you guys fly in this? <laughs> like if it gets below 50 degrees, I'm like, ah, it's not worth flying. I'm just going to stay inside the bay. <laughs> you can do that here in Atlanta, right? Oh yeah. Oh, man. so um, I'm, I was thinking about this, like, like, like military flight pilots kind of become airline pilots, right? I mean, do you expect to see uh, pilots that uh, are in competition retiring and taking on, pilot roles in these emerging industries that are wanting and needing what you have? Absolutely. I, I, am, I completely believe that's what's going to end up happening. I mean, we already see pilots now because this isn't, you know, being a, you know, quote unquote, full-time drone racer yeah. or, you know, full-time drone pilot isn't exactly full-time. Yeah. So, I mean, there's already a lot of really big pilots who are already, you know, getting aerial photography rigs and go doing a lot of, you know, side work. Because right now there's not a lot of money in drone racing itself. Mm. It's growing. It's, for the last three years, it's about an order of magnitude more money being dumped into it. And mm. so it's growing fast, but it's, just, it's not there and it's not sustainable for, mm. you know, probably more than five people in the world right now. Yeah. And so... A lot of us are going into the air photography side of things because there is a lot of money there. There is an industry there that we can go in and you know, we can almost make a living off of doing stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's good to hear that, that that's actually an opportunity, a career opportunity that you'll be able to grow into that. So um, I guess, we, we, again, we, we got a lot, and I can't wait for the, have you back in uh, the, for the roundtable. Uh, in, in the interim, uh, as people are trying to find out more about you and the listening, where can uh, folks find you on the interwebs? Uh, you can go to, I think it's at wildwilly underscore FPV on Instagram and Twitter. I have a YouTube channel for uh, wildwillyfpv and a Facebook page as well for that. Awesome. So thank you very much. You made it through. We'll get you uh, back shortly. Unless you vacate the hot seat, I'll welcome, let's welcome Justin Lee, the drone entrepreneur, into the hot seat. So Justin uh, is founder and creative force behind Intellectual in Ingenuity. Uh, he knew at an early age that his goal was to create his own path and become an entrepreneur, that lonely venture of being an entrepreneur. Uh, formerly trained uh, in machine tool technology and electrical construction and maintenance, he began his career in the telecom industry before starting his drafting and 3D printing company. So, Justin, uh, you believe that technology integration can resolve our long-standing infrastructure shortfalls. Yes. That's, uh, that's an audacious statement there. And, and you're currently applying that philosophy to large-scale commercial drone sector. It's yeah. fascinating to hear the path that you've got to this point. I'm curious, you, 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 uh, you have intellectual ingenuity, so what's, what's your elevator pitch for your new company, and, and then what's your origin story? Um, intellectual ingenuity uh, leverages technological advancements to resolve frustrations in everyday infrastructure. Um, our current project is the AMTS, which is an aerial metropolitan transit system, which is designed to move commuters via large-scale drones with the goal of reducing um, travel time, breaking up traffic jams, and reducing traffic-related injuries. George Jetson. Exactly. Wow. <laughs> All right. So um, you just recently completed the uh, ATDC customer discovery program for this, this idea. Mm -hmm. um, those not familiar with it, that's the, basically a, a lean startup methodology of going out and interviewing as many customers as possible, potential customers, with your idea, but not testing the idea, but testing the problem. Mm -hmm. um, 
What, what did you learn from that process in terms of talking with all those potential customers about the, the problem that you're trying to solve? What the, insights did you get? The main issues that came up with this process uh, were unpredictability in trying to move from point A to point B in Metro Atlanta. Um, they couldn't find a way to properly plan. Uh, so the best way to do it is to just buffer yourself by one to two hours which then you wind up losing a lot of free time mm -hmm. uh, stuck on the road because that, that travel time listed as 20 to 30 minutes quickly jumps to an hour, hour and 15, and it was no warning. Um, so the next one in terms of trying to unpack this and figure out the solution was the inconvenience of other alternatives. So you think uh, your buses, trains, toll lanes, they did not find any good solutions there because of the lack of station fidelity so you can't get where you want to get um, when you want to get there and and they would give up on it right so you think of the intermodal aspect of it if I want to take MARTA and I'm out of the metropolitan area I have to drive to a park and ride mm -hmm. then I have to go according to your schedule and by the time I do that it, it, there's no point I've, I've built in that same one to two hour buffer that I would need um, outside of that they you think, okay, well, what about ride sharing? They weren't comfortable with that. Not enough of, it's not a huge problem in terms of the safety driver uh, concerns. You know, there's, a, there's been a few driver related accidents. There's been a few driver incidents where you, know, you didn't have a favorable um, result with the, with the rider. Not a lot of that, but enough to dissuade people from, from relying on that heavily. And the other one that I found is people really enjoy their personal time. You're stuck in this traffic, but people have unpacked it enough to say, well, I can listen to a podcast. Mm. I can get my audio book taken care of. So, Almost a, a meditative state when you get into that. It's either that or lose your mind. <laughs> um, I, okay, so um, what, do you, what do you think? To what you, so what you're trying to do is you're trying to give individuals uh, a chance to use autonomous drones as their transportation modality, right? Yes. So what, what do you see as the um, biggest hurdles to that? Technological, regulatory, and even societal hurdles that you, you, you're seeing to this? Uh, from a societal standpoint, it's, it's uh, the comfort with, with the new technology. It's the same that you see with, with uh, driverless cars where I can't let go of the wheel in my mind. Um, so just getting around that. It was a similar situation with the elevator. People wouldn't get in this box, so they had the elevator operator back and forth. So you just have to kind of walk people through that process until they see enough people basically not die is what, is what you hear is they say, okay, if this person goes, comes back, one piece, maybe I'll give it a shot. Um, as far as from a technological standpoint, it's power density in your battery. That's going to drive your duration. Um, the, the longer you can be in the air, the further you can go. Um, regulatory is probably the biggest problem that you're running into because it's such a new field, it's such an open space that you don't really qualify for any of the existing standards. Mm. So you're not fixed wing, you're not rotary wing. Closest would be VTOL, but there's no commercial standards for that. So, so when, you're, when you're designing, it's difficult to, to determine, are they going to say, no, you can't have two seats, you need to have one. Are they going to say, well, this backup system is um, not enough. We need an additional one, which then adds to your weight, which then depletes your battery faster, which reduces your duration, which then makes your, your product unviable. So without, without the, the standards being set in stone, it's difficult to design effectively. So, so how far do you think we are away from having a, a solution that you're, you're envisioning? I'm going to be aggressive with it, I would say, three to five years, honestly. And the reason I say that is because um, the FAA has, has admitted that there is a problem and has, has committed to speeding up the process. Um, the technology is there. Uh, we, can, we can make a device now that can get you from point A to point B via the air right now. What, what would it look like? I mean, what, what's the, the analog that you can uh, paint the picture of what it would look like physically if I'm, if I'm going to be getting into this solution? Physically, it's going to be a small box with 
with propellers is the is the closest thing. You, you, when you say Jetsons, people think of a bubble car. Mm -hmm. That's not feasible um, mm -hmm. from a safety standpoint, and then from a weight standpoint, I can't have that much uh, glass or mm -hmm. or um, um, there's nowhere to mount your your other systems if you have a setup like that. So it's going to be aerodynamic box. It, it's not very sexy, but it gets the job done. And again, it kind of goes back to that personal space you get in, you kind of unplug for so a few So one person per, per box? Or We're looking for two, but again, there's, there's been some debate from a safety standpoint and things of that nature, because obviously you need to have, um, it, it, you get kind of like the bus situation. There's no seatbelts on the bus and that's mm -hmm. okay. But when you start flying, is it all right to have people bouncing around if there's ever mm -hmm. any problem? Kind of like the ultralight uh, that, that we're out there, right? Mm-hmm. Hmm. Awesome. Well, excellent. Um, excited that uh, we've been able to have the hot seat. You made it through. Um, where can people find you on the interwebs uh, if they want to learn more about what you're doing? They can tweet at Interluity. That's I-N-T-E-L-L-U-I-T-Y. -I -I. Awesome. <laughs> we'll have that in the show notes as well as the other ones. So thank you. You made it through. You made the hot seat. You can, you can stay where you are. We'll bring our other guests into uh, you guys choose rock, paper, scissor, which seat you want to be in. Um, and we'll get into our round table. Um, let me start off with something. You guys can, unless you got something burning in your head for each other, uh, but let me kind of prime the pump here. Um, what, do you, what do you think are some of the unexpected ways drones are going to change your daily lives from land, sea, or airborne? Unexpected ways, right? It's kind of, there's some obvious ones. What are some things that you wouldn't think about that because of miniaturization, because of the automation, because of humongous size and stuff? I think you're going to see um, a shocking reduction in injuries. Um, right now, it's somewhere around 94% of traffic-related fatalities are caused because of human error. So when you go an automated route, that's going to give you repeatability. And when you are talking point A to point B, that's all it is. We travel the same roads. We use the same routes on a regular basis. When you automate that, the person can check out without it being a problem. And I think that's what we're running into now. A lot of individuals are checking out from the actual driving process, and then you run into rear ends, you run into running off the road. Um, and, and I think that's gonna be one of your biggest, one of your biggest uh, benefits. Charles, Nick? Yeah, um, I think what's really interesting about drone technology is that it's a, it's a tremendously valuable platform technology for doing tremendously boring things, mm. right? Uh, aside from the admittedly ridiculously cool stuff that Nick does uh, flying around these, uh, these, these devices, most of the stuff the drones are going to be doing, um, whether it's transporting people or inspecting pipelines or moving boxes or whatever it is, it's pretty mundane stuff. So I think the, the unexpected thing, the, I think the unexpected effect is actually not necessarily going to be you seeing a drone doing something really, really cool and, and thinking, oh, I didn't think they could do that. I think it's going to be more in the overall, speaking to, to Justin's point, it's going to be overall the reduction of friction in society. Mm. Just the orders of magnitude of improvement in efficiency in society, our precision of data, our precision of our, our knowledge, and our ability to do things in a better way than we ever thought possible before. Mm. Because we can, we can now go places we were never able to, do, to go before because we have visioning technology. You know, think of just, again, boring things like you know, crop dusting or irrigation you can improve that by by checking soil moisture uh, using drone technology just that, that kind of stuff which is again pretty mundane but can have enormous impacts on, on just the way society functions hmm. you, you spark a thought there because um, connectivity uh, in um, reducing friction within society I, I, it gets me thinking of how how will these impact um, you know, underserved areas rural areas we mentioned but what about in underserved areas within urban environments how will these, you know, these drones help with, uh, you know, getting, solving some of those problems, logistics-wise. Again, as far as from an urban standpoint, we lose over $100 billion annually stuck in traffic jams. Um, mm -hmm. We saw I-85. Yeah, with the collapse of the bridge. Uh, just, just not too long ago, and, and people were losing their mind. Um, not only the, 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 the problem of navigating around that, 
but then the businesses that had frontage in that area mm-hmm. uh, saw it you know wiped out now imagine if you didn't have that required infrastructure right mm-hmm. cuz the sky never falls I mean, mm-hmm. you know well, i'm also thinking about like food deserts where you know the 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 economics of a supermarket in an area that might not have it but then if you're able to have reduced friction reduced cost mm-hmm. get get folks fresh fruits fresh vegetables to the areas that may not have that ex- accessibility well for sure, uh, there, there's an economics question there, and I think you, you need to definitely uh, expand the, the definition of drones, which of course AUVSI has done to include autonomous vehicles. So if you include the autonomous vehicle in that, uh, that calculation, yes, absolutely the autonomous vehicle is going to create uh, enormous possibilities for, for underserved communities of various sorts. It's going to reduce things like uh, the, uh, the jobs housing imbalance, for example. It's going to enable people to, to connect to, to job centers in ways they never thought possible because of, of the whole mobility revolution, right, where, where transportation is, it becomes a service rather than uh, a capital asset you've got sitting in your garage, which is obviously barriers to entry to, ha- to owning a vehicle are pretty tremendous. Uh, uh, if you're if you're not uh, if you're below the below the middle class in, in terms of your social status in, the, in, the, in this country, so uh, or any country for that matter. So yeah, I mean there's 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 enormous opportunities there. As I mentioned earlier, though the the question is, you, you need the the economics ha- uh, you know have to work out in terms of what is the cost to deliver that package or what is the cost to transport that person. Um, once you bring down the cost to a sufficient level, yes, then the world the, the world's open the world opens up. Hmm. Nick, what about you? What, what unexpected ways are you, are you thinking we're going to see this impact our lives? I'm not sure about unexpected, but personally, I mean, I just see a lot of jobs everywhere that would just seem like they'd be made safer if you could just do that remotely. Like rather than putting a human body in harm's way, such as like. You know, doing like cell tower inspection and stuff like that, rather than having a dude climb, you know, twenty thousand feet into the air on one of those towers, you just send a two hundred dollar drone up, take a look at it, and oh, done in like five minutes. Come back down, you know. I, th- I think it's going to make a, a lot more jobs like that much safer and a lot more efficient. That's hmm. mm-hmm. interesting because then, then you have the unexpected disruption there on the economic side, where the jobs, you know, so, someone who is willing to like, I, I, I go up uh, Georgia four hundred, and there's a billboard for tree trimmers. You know, they're paying pretty good money if you're willing to get up in a tree with a chainsaw. Uh, but what happens when you take away those, those dangers? You know, it, that's the, you, you look at the agrarian revolution and, and how small towns kind of shrunk because it didn't take 50 people to, to harvest the wheat. It was just one machine and one person. Um, does that, I mean, there's certainly upside. It frees up people to have new opportunities and, and, and for society to, to kind of reach new, new levels. But how do we make sure that uh, there's, there's a, talent pipeline that gets into this. So I'm curious, you know, within the professional and collegiate ranks of, of racers, I mean, how would you describe the average socioeconomic uh, profile of these people? Are, are these pretty much uh, college-educated people that are doing this stuff, or is there people from all walks of life? Oh, I mean, there's everyone from all walks of life. I mean, it, it's kind of nuts. I mean, I would say on average, you know, it's usually, like in most of the races, it's, you know, probably 25 to 40-year-old middle-class men that's most of it at this point but you know as people as this starts growing i mean we've been growing just drones and you know in general grow you know orders of magnitude every two years i mean you're get more and more and more people into it and we've seen in the last you know year or two the cost of drones has come down exponentially so almost anyone can afford them now i think once you know we're, we're really approaching a point where i'd say within the next six months we'll get to a point where drones in like you know you know, high-class drones will be cheap enough for almost anyone to get their hands on one and start, you know, playing around with it and learning the skills that's required to fly these things. And I think that's, to pull off of both points, the, the reduction in cost is, is where we're, we're seeing all of this interest because um, obviously if you're, if you're going to use something that is critical, then it can't fail. Right. But when it's so cheap, it can and when you start to factor that in then you can build in a situation that is you can build in a manner that is not designed where failure is not an option where you say okay it's okay if this burns out if that burns out then you can put redundancies on your platform and the device can still make it to home base and 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 that opens up another opportunity for you to do whatever you want but to touch on your point of of putting people out of work on the more dangerous side 
to touch on Troll's point, you would be balancing that by now if, if you have an automotive replacement because it's expensive for you to own a vehicle, especially if you're in a rural area, you have significantly longer travel times. If you're going with an automated system, which is running significantly longer, you think a driver's needing rest, that's downtime. No, no downtime, higher profit. So more people will be in the workforce, maybe not as dangerous, but there's more opportunities. You can apply for that job. That's one, one thing you see on a regular basis. Do you have reliable transportation? Mm. Yes, no. No, you're not going for yeah, it. Yeah, this kind of touches on the theme of the, our last episode around the, the, the downside of disruption. There's like, there's, it's almost like our financial and economic system needs to be rethought by based on the technological capabilities that we're, we're reaching, right? It blows my mind on this stuff. You got more thoughts on this? Well, I was just going to break, bring uh, or touch on that point again about job creation. Yes, there are obviously going to be jobs that are going to be affected by this. Either they're going to be no, no longer in existence or they're going to be significantly altered mm -hmm. in what they do. However, I do believe, and I think Nick, you touched upon when you were on the hot seat, there is going to be a whole new class of jobs that are, that is, that is drone operator, mm -hmm. uh, that, that'll, that'll be created from this. And this, this may actually be, you're just basically on call from whenever an autonomous drone kind of runs into trouble, doesn't know what it's going to, what, what to do. And you got to get it out of trouble. You might only be working at take for 20 or 30 seconds at a time, but you have to be really, really good. You have to be able to think three dimensionally. You have to be able to strap on a VR headset, know exactly where you are, you know, those kinds of things. <laughs> so I actually think that people who are really, really good at playing video games, especially like first person shooters, those kinds of things are going to be uh, in pretty high demand uh, in, in the future for those kinds of, for those kinds of opportunities. They might be responsible for a, a group of maybe 50 to 100 drones and whenever one of them doesn't really know what's going on around it, you gotta, you have to jump in and, and get it out of trouble and remote. It's remote good that you, you bring up video games and esports e is another, is a future episode that we're putting together right now. And we were talking, Nick, that there are people that are cross-pollinating. Do, do you see that it's true? That what, no, oh, that absolutely. I mean, I think we have three of the 16 pilots in DRL are professional, they did professional esports for a while. And then they moved over to drones. I mean, one of the DRL pilots this year came in because DRL created a video game competition competition where they took their simulator and they had a competition of flying, you know, the video game simulator. And the pilot who won is now in DRL $75,000 contract. I mean, it's, they have, as of this year, you know, there's extreme cross-pollination between both of those. I think it's just going to get even more intense every year. Yeah, and, and Charles, your point, yeah, there, there certainly was a lot of uh, buggy whips uh, companies that were put out of business by automotive, and that's just part of the, the evolution that we have. But it, it is interesting to think, like, there are things that we're not going to expect uh, that are now possible because of the convergence of some of the technologies you guys have been talking about, as well as the, the, the economics. So uh, I, I get to that, like, taking it to the extreme from a miniaturization standpoint then, I mean, are, are we seeing that these, these types of drones, because we're talking land, sea, and air, are we eventually going to see uh, these things coming inside on the nanoscale inside the human body, and this becomes medical solutions? And then, you know, Nick, he's, his profession, he's very, his specialty is, is uh, getting the platelets uh, to where they need to be within the circulation system by nudging them with his drone. Is it, is that, you guys see something like this? Are we going to go inside the human body? We're going to get so small with these drones? I'm not personally. I mean, I'm. We have been miniaturizing a lot, but to get to that scale, I'm not sure if the technology is there, or I'm not sure if it will possibly be possible to get that small and still have a, a remotely piloted system to do things on that scale. I think that's where you would wind up with with your limitation at a, at a certain level. If it can be done, it's got to be pre-programmed. So once it's in, it does what it's supposed to do, and either dissolves or goes to a, a less harmful state and um but I, i'm not sure if, if nick's going to be flying inside of me and i'm not <laughs> sure if that's going to work yeah i think i mean if it does get to that scale it would be a very long time before we have the capabilities to create you know a remotely piloted machine that can traverse through the human body and have someone you know sit there with the vr headset like oh i want to go here 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 like it it's, it's a very, very complex when you get down to that scale. And that just goes for all things, not just drones, when you get to the nanoscale. Charles, are you, are you anti-nanoscale uh, uh, as well? I think I, I, I am definitely not an expert on nanoscale. Um, I mean, it's a fun I, word to say, though, isn't it? It is a very fun word. Yeah, let's <laughs> say it a couple more times, nanoscale. And nanoscale. add that to your, your word uh, list to use this month, nanoscale. Well, that, that being said, though, uh, nanoscale, there I said it again. That, that being said, though, I think, I think miniaturization doesn't necessarily have to go to the nanoscale. Uh -huh. um, 
in order to be useful, uh, you you can you can imagine drones that are of 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 insect size or or maybe a little larger than that that could be really really helpful in terms of again disaster recovery after an earthquake, for example, need to get into crevices, understanding you know uh, that the, the the old I think there's already been like a half a dozen movies that have uh, you know popularized this notion of like a cockroach looking little thing that can crawl into uh, into earthquake uh, and, and other types of situations that's definitely a possibility uh, and it would have huge huge uh, benefits yeah and and the smaller they get the the more you're going to batch them which goes back to i can lose again in your disaster relief if i send a ton out and they they don't come back, I'm okay. Mm-hmm. I haven't broken the bank. Yes, yeah, the, the swarm mentality, right? Exactly. So, yeah. And it, it's funny, it was like the word drone, it comes back you know, to insects, and mm-hmm. they're just kind of mindless. They just do a very simple program thing, uh, and you do swarms, right? There's a lot of things that work together. I mean, that's the, the, the we had talked about uh, in, in the front end, the idea of the military has been DARPA and all that's been feat, uh, funding a lot of the innovations that we've seen. Uh, and so military applications... Uh, really help drive some of this innovation, but I'm, I'm, it's interesting to see what what some of these military applications will be used for, you know, kind of societal good as well. Yeah, I want to point out, like, uh, for uh, DARPA has a project, for example, they're funding where they want, for example, uh, like for clearing buildings out, like mm. before sending soldiers in, they want to send, for example, five drones flying autonomously in through a building to scout it out. But it was funny, I was you know, looking at the project and I was like, why, why autonomously? We can't do that. That's really hard to get that scale, to get it to be something that you know you can accurately, you know, you hit a button, all five do it. Like it it's kind of sketchy, the technology we have right now. Like me and my friends, we do that for fun. We go to abandoned buildings, we're like, all right, you know, we whip through abandoned buildings, you know, looking around. Like that's, it's something that I feel like is almost kind of an untapped thing that is almost trying to be overcomplicated at this point that we, have people who can do that now and they just kind of don't realize it because a lot of them are scared of you know mm. putting people in the loop and that's a, a, a normal military trend I've seen is they they really don't like putting pilots in physical command of the drones they want everything to be autopiloted you know, everything completely redundant and they're not really trusting of the pilots hmm. so you guys had a chance to kind of uh, hear each other I mean and I'm curious what, what questions you have for one another any gauntlets you want to throw down on the table? From a logistical side of things, have you considered the downtime associated with if you were to were just start to tr- see some movement away from the traditional and have a fleet of drones doing something? That, that, that downtime associated with it, have you calculated the impact of that? Me personally, no, but I'm sure there are many companies who have. Uh, but again, that that comes down to, as, as I was mentioning earlier, the this is not a technology question. I mean, we today have the technology uh, in terms of deploying drones successfully in package delivery. There's been many, many pilots there. You know, UPS did this incredibly cool drone-enabled uh, uh, you know, delivery car that's going to be uh, an amazing uh, uh, enhancement to how they do rural delivery. So that's all, that's all sort of settled science at this point. The question is economics. The question is... Uh, what is the what is the what is the, the the drone cost? What is the cost to deploy the drone? Because that's different. You know, you need a launch pad. You know, that's the Amazon video that you probably have seen, where they have these launch pads outside this uh, small distribution center in the UK. Uh, what is it? What is the cost to maintain it? What's the efficiency in terms of the payload that it can carry? You know, all these things. I mean, supply chain management is is all about shaving pennies, uh, or or uh, or even you know inches. Fractions of pennies off of uh, off of very very expensive um, operations, and so uh, that that's where you are right now. As, as again, as the cost comes down, that's where you're going to start seeing much more to uh, much more widespread deployment of it. So, yeah, I just think about like uh, on the interstate recently tra- traveling across the country, and all the semi trucks that are parked because of the eight hour limitation and mm-hmm. in the downtime that they have, and even just the, the social interactions they were having at the Flying J truck stop. Uh, while they were watching TV together, it's like there's a. It'd be interesting. Uh, this cost savings are definitely going to be there because if you think about that limitation. But I mean, even other things like when you add other modalities into this, what, what are we doing to create less friction within that supply chain? Hmm. 
You guys got any other questions for each other before we turn to yeah, the panel? Just speaking of economics, I got one for you. So um, one thing I'm curious about, so the the, the solution that, that you're designing, you're working on, what, what is the price point you're kind of thinking of for me to to take a, to take a flying box from Alpharetta to Midtown in a couple of years, three to five years, how much would that cost? The the business model right now, what we're working on is finding again the economic break even where I can, if I add enough capacity, it becomes just as your normal mode of transportation. I don't want to say any numbers because people are going to pull this up and and say, well, you said. But from our customer discovery, we're looking at a $400 a month option. Um, so if I, if, I had, if I could pay you $400 a month for a service that gets me from Roswell to Midtown, or, I mean, is there like, is that, is that fixed destinations, or $400 a subscription to use within your system? It's a subscription to use within a radius is the current business model. So you pull so, up. So what stops like, like a regional transfer authority like MARTA to come in and take take that on is it isn't that a natural uh, for for something like them? That's you're just talking about a, a new version of, of transportation. Wouldn't that be something that they should be they, they should be looking at? They should be, but the incentive is currently not there for them to. I've been trying to extend Marta Rail for more than a decade, so to go in and build an entirely new infrastructure where you have storage and, and control systems and, and the vehicles themselves, again, to Troll's point, they can't, that's, that's almost a cart before the horse, either that or circular logic, depending on how you look at it. There's, there's not enough demand. How about a circular cart before horse? Uh, exactly. All right, there we go. Not, <laughs> not <laughs> enough demand for the investment, and then mm. the investment needs to be there before there's more demand. So. Mm. Interesting. Any questions for a professional drone racer before we ask him? Or for a, of, a, of the or from the drone racer? You get something cooking in your head, Nick? So you're telling me, is it 400 bucks a month, roughly? Is that like a daily? Like I can fly, what is that, 15 miles, like into my own personal box, like I, 10 bucks? I think you've been looking okay. at my paperwork. But yes, that, <laughs> that's, that's exactly the limitations that we're working on right now. And again, it's. At, at this early stage, it's a number crunching game. But yes, we're looking at about a 15 mile radius that we're trying to, to give you um, an out and back option. Um, but it becomes a matter of, it's, it's almost an all or nothing where you get, I can't do that at $400 for you. But if we get the room signed up, yeah. then the numbers become yeah, it's feasible. It's yeah, it's like, you know, air, it's kind of like when aircraft first came along, when jet exactly. came along, it was like, oh, my God, I'm not going to pay $20,000 for a jet ride when only, you know, one dude paid for this, you know, $30 million aircraft. But when you start running it, you know, 100 flights a day, completely packed with 200 people, then it becomes economically viable. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Well, it's, it's just like saying, would you, would you get into a big metal tube to fly to uh, New Orleans uh, by yourself? But if I can share the cost with 200-some people, it makes sense, right? Exactly. Hmm. Cool. Awesome. Well, uh, why don't we shift to the, the final segment, which is our town hall Q&A. Um, I would invite our audience who's been listening uh, attentively uh, uh, to come over here to my microphone and ask your question. Um, if I don't see movement, I will call on you. Uh, so... Uh, Nathaniel, um, uh, somebody uh, must have a great question. All right, come on over. Introduce yourself, who you're with, and then, then go ahead and ask the question. Hi, good evening. Uh, Travis Warner. I'm with Accenture, and I have a supply chain background. I'm an aerospace engineer from Georgia Tech, and I used to work for Delta Airlines. So a lot of interesting tie-ins here, I think. Um, I'd like to ask a few questions of all the panelists around uh, supply chain risk. Um, a lot of things that obviously Amazon and drone delivery are doing in the, uh, the airspace world. Uh, when we have weather delay in the Delta Airlines world, where I used to work in the operations control center, uh, we had to obviously have an irregular operations plan. So what happens when your air mode of travel immediately goes away and you have to go to a ground-based solution? What is the backup plan for the box uh, for $400 a month? Um, and when we have supply chain uh, uh, obligations, if you will, contractual or otherwise, uh, what is the ground-based solution when the meteorology department says we can't fly? Great question. Great questions. Esteemed guest. 
that that is an outstanding question, and I don't know that I have an answer to that yet. Um, I think that that's going to be that's going to be part of the calculations that that companies have to uh, have to perform when they decide on on what is the appropriate, um, say, mode share, for example, for for airborne uh, airborne drones. I, to be to be clear, I, I don't know that there is a a long term business case for massive. The uh, deployment of airborne delivery drones in urban areas—that uh, the, the the nightmare scenario scenario is to have you go know, ten thousand drones, you know, buzzing around Peachtree Street in the middle of the afternoon, uh, which is you know both a quality of life issue. There is a safety issue. There's yeah, it seems like that's why the, these these autonomous uh, land-based uh, drones that are now going around cities and delivery. Yeah. That well, and that, that, that's where the question then comes in. You know, the, the, the reality is for those kinds of delivery systems to work, it, it, the, the higher the density, the population density, the better. But the higher the population density, the more congestion you have on, on not only the roads, but also the sidewalks. Mm -hmm. So there are multiple equilibria that need to be solved for here. And absolutely, when you're having things like weather delays or, uh, or, or you're having other kinds of uh, sort of, act of acts of God to come in and, and disrupt, your, uh, disrupt, disrupt your supply network, then you're going to run into some of that variability that that is the, the the thing that every supply chain wants to avoid. It's not necessarily about the time that it takes or the cost of delivery. It's about the variability. It's about your you know how predictable is my service, and so uh, that that is just simply something I think that needs to be researched out by by all the various pilots that are that are uh, that are going on right now. Yeah, and it's also interesting to think about you know how how will something like Hyperloop change things too, right? So you've got a whole other way of getting people to and from in tubes, uh, the, the old pneumatic style, uh, you know, the, the, back in the Victorian areas of pneumatic world, which uh, congestion is it? Go ahead, Jason. The, 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 to answer your question, um, as far as an aerial standpoint, if it's a localized event, then you just navigate around it. If it's wide scale, it's probably bad enough that you might not want to be on the roads either so so that's where once it gets so to, to to a point where you shouldn't be flying you also shouldn't be driving let's let this weather pass and we see it all the time right when hurricanes come in and you see the cars floating where they say don't try to ford this particular swollen river they do it all the time so both modes actually are are untenable at a certain point in time that's when a sea-based drone would work right exactly which <laughs> in no other part of the time but the, as far as your your tube um in the hyperloop it becomes a question of stations we already have trains yeah. and that is a good idea for a large you know, going from one hub to another because I don't need to stop. But if it was a scenario where I needed to go here and then go grocery shopping, if you have a station at each point, then you can't get up to speed. So there's the density issue there. Hmm. Interesting. Scott, could you ask Nick about the Yeah, okay, you, go ahead. Uh, sure. I also wanted to bring in the pilot concept of this as well because uh, when you're doing your DRL racing, uh, what happens when you have a rain delay? Yeah, so uh, I, like, how does that work? And do you even do anything at all, or are the drones now capable of being able to uh, do the things that you do up to a certain threshold? Yeah, I was, I was going to chime in on this because, uh, on at least for DRL, uh, for the past two seasons and probably for the next one, um, it is explicitly stated that every event has to be done indoors. So they find indoor venues for everything, only because they can't plan for weather. And the drones cannot fly in rain. They can't fly in high, you know, if the winds are too high, be very hard to fly in that. And it makes, you know, adds a level of unpredictability into the racing. And so they've been explicitly indoor just for the reason of weather. And what, about, what about the collegiate level? Was that, was that indoor or outdoor? Collegiate level is outdoor, but they had an indoor backup plan. So a lot of the big events will have, you know, a plan B, like a, like a secondary indoor place they can do it. Racing indoors is you know, not that fun because it's usually a lot tighter area and you can't, you know, go 110 miles an hour in a school gym. And so, you or, know. Or can you? Yeah, you can. <laughs> if you like running into walls really, really fast, you can definitely do that. But, yeah, it's, it's usually we just, I mean, sometimes events just get canceled. Like a lot of local ones. I mean, two weeks ago we had a qualifier for the national championship and they just scrapped it because it was raining. Just one, one more thing to add to that supply chain question about, uh, about 
variability and, and potential hazards and, and, and weather, et cetera. What, what drones offer, whether they be air, land, or sea, and then your, your comment about the sea-based drone kind of sparked this thought. You know, th this is actually a, a, a potentially an advantage for, for supply chains because the more, the, the more flexibility you have, the more modes you can deploy at any given time in any given area, the easier it is for you to reach your final destination mm. when you need to. Right, so uh, you know this happens today. You have you have a major accident on 285, and all of a sudden you're going to have a lot of, of potentially delayed deliveries around town. Uh, so, being able to then reroute some of those packages, the ones that are really truly time sensitive, onto for example airborne vehicles, would potentially bypass that. And you could do vice versa as well, right? You you know for for some reason there's 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 heavy rain and drones can't fly. Well, maybe we can now deploy uh, land-based sidewalk robots to do some of our local deliveries, you know, those kinds of things. So, so being able to introduce more modes into both your last mile and your, your, your line haul uh, is, is going to be beneficial, actually, in terms of, of your, your supply chain planning and, and, um, and efficiency. Hmm. Oh, I think we've got time for uh, one more question. Um, anybody else want to be a taker? All right. All right. He actually does exist. I wasn't making him an imaginary friend. Here's Nathaniel. Yes, I've got about a dozen questions I'd love to ask, but I'll just stick with one here. So who are you and what, are, what do you do? Yeah, so, uh, oh, I mean, I introduced myself in the last one, but, yeah, uh, I'm Nathaniel Horodam. I'm a city planning student at Georgia Tech, um, working on transportation, and uh, because of that background, I'm a little bit skeptical of the uh, drone, flying drone concept in, in cities, so I'm a little more interested in the, you know, outside the city concept maybe not even last mile, but last 50 miles. To kind of piggyback on news from last week, Amazon bought Whole Foods. Now everyone's speculating, are they gonna buy, you know, farmers, you know, these large scale farms next and, you know, do this vertical integration where they can automate the entire, um, you know, farming collection of product, of, of inputs, deliver them to their grocery stores, et cetera. I mean, how far away are we from that, where you can have multiple classes of drones, one picking strawberries, the other one collecting those picked strawberries and delivering it to a central warehouse where it's sorted and then distributed to a city or to a distribution center on the edge of a city that it can then be brought by person even? Um, I think what, what you're kind of envisioning is, is more of a light switch concept. Right, so the one that picks strawberries does one thing. That's what your light switch does, on or off. It just picks the strawberries, and then the next one in the line. So from a technological standpoint, again, like Charles was saying, it's here. It can be done. It's a matter of if Amazon goes and does a study that says this is a viable option, and we can really f get a good return on investment. If I can, there's nothing to stop me from doing, it, aside from an antitrust or some regulatory body stepping in. And that's, again, to your point, the downside of getting all of these technological advancements because what we'll see is all of those goods are going to be cheaper for the end user, but all the people who used to do it are now out of a job. So we, we as a society will continue to ingest that product because it's, it's cheaper for me, but at some point nobody can afford it because nobody's working. Hmm. I was going to say, I mean, on the, just touching on things getting cheaper, I mean, from what I've seen personally, Four years ago, if you wanted to, for example, carry a camera in the air, you, the, the cheapest thing you could do, spend ten, fifteen thousand dollars $15,000 on a four-foot diameter rotor helicopter with a you know, Canon 7DD strapped to it on a massive gimbal, and you really, really hope that it comes back in one piece. <laughs> and nowadays, for fun, we take a $200 quad and we run it into concrete at 90 miles an hour because it's hilarious. <laughs> that... It's an unexpected use of technology. Yes, <laughs> that, that does sound like a lot of fun. Um, build, building on, on, on both points, actually, well, this is not a hardware challenge. Uh, yes, obviously, there are some hardware challenges, but it, this is not predominantly a hardware challenge. It's predominantly a software and, and then data integration, data analysis challenge. One of the biggest issues in, in supply chain today is, is, is this whole idea of supply chain visibility, knowing where stuff is 
at this exact moment in time what the state of that stuff is you know is it cold enough is it too hot um, and where it's going I mean all these different all these different data points that surround the piece of uh, the, 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 the individual good down to the individual package level or even below that into the each level that is still something that a lot of major supply chains are working to figure out and until you have that level of granularity in your data stream you're not going to be able to have such a such a fine-tuned supply chain that you can actually have you know freshly picked strawberries at home that were picked three hours ago down in uh, in middle Georgia um, economically without having you know to, to literally call somebody and say hey I want them here and they, they set up a special delivery for you for that to be ubiquitous and for that to be the norm you need such a, uh, an order of magnitude improvement in the current state of data in the supply chain. Uh, we'll get there. I mean, there's, there's lots and lots of people working on this. That's probably where the largest um, hill to climb is right now for that level of granularity and, and optimization in the supply chain. Hmm. Is there standardization on that data? Is that the problem? There's no federated data system? Well, I mean, part, part of it is the standardization issue. There's such, a, there's such fragmentation in the industry. There are so many different service providers. They each have their data standards, or, or they, may, they may not have an incentive to share data uh, for a mm -hmm. variety of reasons. Um, there's also the fact you have a lot of legacy systems, and those legacy systems cannot do what you want them to do. And the cost to actually uh, replace those legacy systems is astronomical for a lot of large companies. And so it, it's an iterative process right now where you're kind of glomming on different modules to, uh, uh, to what you already have, and you have to, you know, upgrade from an EDI model to an API model. I mean, there's all kinds of things that still need to happen. We're still in the, in the infancy there. The goal ultimately is to have the fully visible, fully autonomous supply chain that, that, that orders on its own, that uh, predicts on its own, that, uh, and, and that runs you know, pretty much on its own and where you can have full visibility as a manager go in and see exactly where your product is, where it's going. And you, you really don't need to do much other than maybe uh, deal with, uh, with unexpected scenarios, kind of like the drone pilot thing we talked about earlier. The thing's going to run on its own 95% of the time, and the other 5% is when humans need to step in and kind of figure out what, uh, what, what to do. Hmm. Fascinating. I get your answer there, Nathaniel? Good. Fabulous. All right, man. Well, that, uh, that brings us to the end of another episode of the Humpta Exchange. How about that? Uh, I want to thank our guest, uh, Trolls Adrian, Nick, Wild Willie, Willard. I just love saying that. Justin Lee and our strategic partners, uh, the University Financing Foundation, Gateway Development Service, ATDC, Scheller College of Business, SQ5, Keysight Technologies, MARTA, Honeywell, the Combine, and the Atlanta Bridge community. So a round of applause for uh, our guests tonight. Thank you very much for that. Be sure to check out TechSquareATL.com for regular stories about TechSquare. Learn more about Sandbox ATL, uh, the Sandbox ATL membership network at SandboxATL.com. And book your breakthrough event at BookTheGarage.com. Uh, a final thank you to you, our listeners. If you like what you're hearing, we'd love it if you shared this podcast with your friends. And be sure to, describe, to subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, anywhere else you can find us. And please leave a review. That always helps. So until you see the camel silhouette beamed in the sky again... This has been the Humday Exchange. <laughs>